from Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village. This is Academical. In our podcast, we peek under the hood of the machine of public policy. I'm your host, Con Reeds, here with Gary Christensen as we dive into the pending crisis in Afghanistan. We have the pleasure of talking with Director Kurtzer of the Center for Strategic and International Studies to discuss the complex policy questions around humanitarian aid in Afghanistan. Jacob Kurtzer is the Director and Senior Fellow with the Humanitarian Agenda at the Center, where he explores some of the world's most pressing humanitarian challenges. From his work with the International Committee of the Red Cross to his experience on the Hill, Director Kurtzer covered areas all around the globe from South Sudan to Israel to Pretoria, South Africa. With his experience, Director Kurtzer offers a unique perspective into what is and will happen with Afghanistan. Without further ado, here's our show. So a lot of stuff has has, has come out of Afghanistan over the past couple months, um, specifically just with everything that's happened out of Kabul. Um, so with all these recent developments coming out of it, Afghanistan, uh, with what exactly is happening in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal? A starting point to answer that question would be to look at what was happening in the period prior to it. There was a very serious downward trajectory for the last year and a half, at least, that aligned fairly closely with the establishment of the political negotiations in the previous administration. After those political negotiations took place, there were offensives by the Taliban in the periphery of the country. Violence was escalating on the periphery of the country, number one. Number two, as a consequence of COVID-19 and as a consequence of U.S. sanctions on Iran, the Iranians were pushing back a lot of Afghan refugees that had taken, um, that had been displaced over the years and were living in border areas between Iran and Afghanistan. So as a consequence of COVID and the sanctions and their own mismanagement and malfeasance, the Iranian economy was collapsing, and so they were pushing back Afghans because they felt like they could no longer um, sustain that civilian population. So you had a very toxic and potentially combustible mix of displaced people right between Taliban forces and government of Afghanistan forces supported by NATO. Um, you had COVID-19, Afghanistan is experiencing its fourth wave, and you have a situation of um, drought. Uh, Afghanistan is experiencing um, uh, serious climactic shocks which is impacting its ability to produce um, goods and services. So all these things were taking place prior to the withdrawal. They've all gotten worse, right? The Taliban de facto authorities have no experience governing, right? So their ability to provide basic services is extremely limited. They've demonstrated wanton disregard for civilian life, committing human rights violations, killing atrocities. Um, they created a situation that makes it extremely hard for the international community to respond to all those existing challenges. And because Afghan civilians fear what Taliban rule might be, you're seeing much wider levels of displacement. So people are trying to leave. The situation now from a humanitarian perspective is uh, incredibly bad, incredibly complicated, and one where there are no easy solutions that people in the policy and advocacy community can coalesce around because every thought about what we can do has a pretty serious negative consequence um, that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with. Yeah, and, and I think that really touches on how complex the issue really is. So it's like, when I'm thinking about this, when I'm thinking at, about the people who are at, at most risk, so with these people just priming it with being displaced in Afghanistan, we in the news, we it garners a lot of attention towards how the Taliban have treated women in 
previously, but really who else, what other demographics are really running the risk with this new authority, with their transition into authority? Um, so I think the entirety of the Afghan civilian population is at some level of risk with the reality of a failed state and the economic collapse. Um, but I think from a humanitarian and a human rights perspective, you focus on what we sometimes would refer to as populations of concern. So one, women and girls in particular, right? Um, for 20 years, women have been able to join the workforce, to join education, you know, to get, um, have access to education. Um, young girls have had choice in their lives. You know, not all, obviously it's much more complicated than a, than a simple narrative, but um, the situation was much more open than it had been previously. And we've seen a, an immediate and, and really distressing rollback of all those rights and opportunities. Um, there's various different minority populations um, that have either historic grievances between them and Taliban leadership, um, but also people who made choices like being journalists or working with international organizations or working with the United States government. People who made choices that they thought were for the betterment of their community, for the betterment of their country. So there's all these um, subpopulations that are at, at increased risk. And I think that from a protection perspective, um, one of the additional concerns is that while the Taliban want to demonstrate or want to convey this idea that they're in control, we've seen in the last few weeks multiple bombings at Shia mosques. They don't have control. They don't have, they have not demonstrated their ability to control even the security component of that country. And that creates um, a really, uh, a very deep fear of another outbreak of a different kind of violence in which civilians will once again be caught in a crossfire. Could you speak to the complexity of trying to define what the Taliban is and, and how to separate the Taliban and what we're sanctioning as a terrorist group with now what is the de facto actual government? You know, it's, a, it's kind of two separate questions, right? Like, you know, there's um, a political philosophy question about what the Taliban is, right? Is it a mm -hmm. movement? Is it an organized armed group? Is it a political movement? You know, um, there's a practical question of like, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they do have, you know, membership cards, right? But like, we don't, we don't think of them of that particular group um, in that way, right? The question then becomes, okay, well, what is the Taliban in the eyes of the U.S. government as an entity? The Taliban are considered by the United States government to be an entity that carries out terrorism, and they're restricted from all sorts of activities with them. Um, and now the the key question, which remains in in I think legal limbo, is when a group like the Taliban takes over the functioning of the state, how does that designation carry over into the ministries or the responsibilities that they're carrying out as de facto authorities? As of now, most of the interpretive guidance that I believe has come out of the United States has intentionally avoided answering that question because of the implications that it has for various other elements of U.S. policy and, and U.N. engagement. I, I, I completely agree. I think establishing a, a concrete definition really kind of muddies the water a little bit with what, how they're able to adapt. Um, but I, I'd really like to get into to, to your expertise. You, you've done a lot of international relations with, with humanitarian aid. Uh, and just kind of speaking to, to how this transition complicates your work. Uh, with humanitarian aid, you touched how it's going to be very fearful for some of these individuals being put in the crosshairs. Um, from your end, what are the main complications for delivering this aid? So it's an interesting question because the political questions for humanitarian organizations 
have increased. The legal questions or challenges have increased. The day-to-day -day challenges very well may have decreased, right? One, one thing that I don't think many of them will say publicly is it's actually easier to work in a context of unified control, even if the unified controller is a bad actor. The problem is these political and, and legal questions. Those are much more complicated because there's uncertainty about what the United States position is. We fall back on the legal constraints that existed previously, right? So you cannot provide material support to a terrorist organization. Well, what does that mean? Are you allowed to pay taxes to a Taliban-controlled Ministry of Finance, right? Are you allowed to pay fees for permits or whatever from a Haqqani-controlled Ministry of Refugees? How do you navigate the questions of the legal restrictions that come into come into force by virtue of being designated a special, specially designated global terrorist? How do you reconcile that with the practical realities of what you would do in any country, right? NGO X wants to operate in the United States. They go to the IRS, they fill out a tax form, they pay a fee, right? Even if the Taliban was doing the most limited fee service, that would still potentially be considered in violation. And so you have these extremely complicated legal questions, which of course have a, now back to the political, like an overarching political implication because there are now a lot of people who are really angry about what has happened in Afghanistan, right? Uh, some of it's partisan, some of it's political, and most of it is genuinely held because people either believed in the project or genuinely believe in, you know, are cared, concerned about Afghan slaves. People are very angry, right? And what that anger comes sometimes manifests in is uh, finding ways to express that anger um, through policy prohibitions or prescriptions. And what I mean here is there's a lot of people now who are very skeptical of the idea that we should continue to provide humanitarian and development assistance in Afghanistan because there's a sense of, well, some of that will go to benefit the Taliban. And the Taliban are, you know, we're, we're angry at them, we're angry at the way the situation, so we should cut off all funding, right? To me, that is not the correct course of action. If we were looking at the situation without having been party to the conflict for 20 years, what would we think is the right course of action for those civilians who, through no fault of their own, are facing a harsh winter without access to food or shelter? And when you make that calculus and you set aside, you know, my anger about what happened at Hamid Karzai International Airport or what happened five years ago, or the surge 10 years ago, or the decision to stay in 2001, you set aside all the questions and you look at it from like, what can we do today to help? To me, the answer is fairly clear. So if you could talk a little bit about the different actors that are actually involved, the banks, the NGOs, the governments, um, and, and uh, kind of, um, as you said, who's acting in good faith here and, and who isn't? The United Nations is a, in some sense, a, a overarching entity that has within it a lot of separate agencies that do various different things. In Afghanistan, you have the World Food Program, the UN High Commission for Refugees, UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, and a whole bunch of other UN agencies, all of whom have different mandates and carry out different activities. So UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. So you have a bunch of different UN agencies doing work in Afghanistan. Um, that's one set of humanitarian actors. Their relationships in Afghanistan are complicated because the UN is a political entity, you know, it's, a, or it's an international organization composed of states. So you have a community of NGOs 
who don't have that same level of diplomatic protection and authority as the UN agencies. So the way that they negotiate both with the US government and with the Taliban or any other non-state armed group is very different. Um, you have within that a subgroup of NGOs like Doctors Without Borders who don't take government money, right? So CARE, Save the Children, World Vision, Mercy Corps, they all take tons of money from the US government. And as a consequence, they are perceived differently by the Taliban or other armed groups. A third actor of note is the International Committee of the Red Cross, right? The organization that's mandated by the Geneva Conventions to carry out a whole host of humanitarian activities. They've been operating in Afghanistan for like 50 years. I mean, going back to the time that the Russians were there. And as a consequence, they have an established relationship of trust with the Taliban. You know, the reason this is important is when you talk about humanitarian action, you're actually talking about a lot of different organizations doing a lot of different things for a lot of different mandates with a lot of different sources of funding. And so it's a very complicated picture day to day on the ground in terms of what's allowed, what's not allowed, who's safe, who's not safe. How do we strike that balance? Because if the Taliban is the de facto government, and if that's the foreseeable future, how do we ensure that the aid is getting to the right people if these channels are set up and run by potentially bad actors? I've increasingly come to the view that we need to have a much more honest perspective on what it means to work in these kinds of places. Like we just need to acknowledge that there is no context in which you can do no harm, right? So the question in Afghanistan becomes, okay, well, how do we mitigate the risk? So one of the challenges I think is getting all those humanitarian actors on the same page, right? What ends up happening in a lot of contexts is that all these actors kind of negotiate access on their own and they get played against each other, right? So UN agency one will go in and say, we'll accept these kinds of restrictions or these kinds of fees, right? And then, you know, the, the bad actor, the Taliban, will go to the other UN agency and say, well, the first one said they'll accept these fees, so we want to charge you those fees. That organization might have said, we won't pay them, or their donor might say, you're not allowed to pay them. So now they're getting played against each other. So I think one of the challenges is sort of common positions amongst the major humanitarian players. Again, it's complicated because they have different mandates that different funding sources. I kind of like how you're talking about kind of, we, we've talked about the aid, the actors, we've, we've talked about the pipeline. One question that I'm, I'm particularly interested in is in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal. So you talked about prior to the, the Taliban is, is amassing people outside of these major cities in these, these rural areas uh, surrounding these, these cities. Um, with the withdrawal, how has this kind of impacted the, the infrastructure with, with delivering this aid? So on the one hand, it's kind of, it is a little bit easier in the sense of you're only really negotiating your security guarantees or your access with one party, but it's not really a party that has a great track record of trust, uh, a great track record of supporting the humanitarian community to carry out work in accordance with its own principles and, and methodologies. So um, I think what you have seen is the ICRC, MSF, UNHCR, and the World Food Program and, to, and then to a lesser degree of lots of the other organizations have all said they're committed to staying and to deliver, right? They're, they're committed to stay, they're committed to deliver. Um, how much humanitarian operations are ongoing, um, it's, it's dropped off substantially. I think the access environment has become much more constrained. Um, and unfortunately, it's a race against time because the weather conditions in the winter uh, mean that in addition to the security and the political constraints, you also have just your inability to move because of um, you know, road networks and things that, that become unusable. So 
and all of this, of course, is in the backdrop. You, you mentioned risk quite a bit um, and mitigating it. But, you know, given that risk, we're seeing a liquidity crisis there, which is also compounding all of these issues right before winter comes, if you will. Um, so if you could speak to a little bit about what's needed to get banks to, um, uh, you know, free up credit, which is desperately needed and, and pump some liquidity into the Afghan system. And is that completely relevant? Is that mostly related to just the U.S. sanctions or is it or is it a, the actual risk, as you've been talking about, of dealing with the channels of the Taliban or, of course, a mix of all of the above? Yeah, there's, there's like a few separate things. They're all tied, I think, to the designation and, and the sanctions. So one is the United States holding $9 billion somewhat of you know, government cash. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is like, the, at, maybe we're doing this in reverse, right? One is um, you, can't, you can't work there unless you have a license. And they've OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, has granted this general license and said humanitarian work is permitted. But many banks have made a determination that it's just too risky, right? Now, even when you have the license, you run into the second problem, which is, um, you know, the banks won't work. Even if the banks would be willing to work, you run into the third problem, which is there is no money, right? And the the mechanisms by which you can transfer money um, are basically non-functional because there there just is no no cash in the country. So one of the challenges is like, how do we get cash into the country and not have that exploited, right? So that is one um, area of focus for the policy community. And that's where things like the UNDP or World Bank Trust Fund, you can put cash into those organizations, let them distribute it um, and sort of bypass the, the banking system. What, I, what I'm seeing now is an attempt to find a perfect solution. And it feels very much like this is the perfect being the enemy of the good. But again, it runs up to this question that, that some people in Washington are just unwilling to accept the idea of money going either and either getting you know some percentage siphoned off by the Taliban, mm-hmm. providing some sense of legitimacy to the Taliban. And that's why this is one of the situations where you're just balancing between bad options and trying to find the policy solution, which I think you know um, finds the nexus between you know our national interests, right? While you know, while averting the worst outcome. I know that you just said perfect might be the enemy of good here. Um, but in your perfect world, right, if you were, what would you, if you, you know, Biden called you up and, and said, what should I do? Um, what would be your word of advice to say, you know what, we need to do X, Y, and Z, at least off the bat. I know you've talked a lot about getting people on the same page, but if you could w- wave a magic wand here, what would be the move? I think the White House needs to, needs to say what it wants, right? I mean, I don't think we've seen, we, we see statements that say, oh, we're going to support the humanitarian, whatever, but um, as long as humanitarian is like three or four on the list of our priorities in Afghanistan, it's always going to be, um, it's always going to be second to, you know, counterterrorism or our political identity. And I would say that those things should be flipped. Like our, our, I would tell, tell the administration that having, having made a decision, which I think was a brave and politically courageous, bold political decision to carry out the withdrawal you're worse off than presiding over a massive humanitarian emergency by not acting, right? At this point, you own it. You can point your finger at previous administrations, one, two, and three. You know, you can point at Trump, you can point at Obama, you can point at Bush, but like you own it. This is yours now. And you should be doing everything in your power to avert a worst case scenario. And so licenses, uh, 
comfort letters, statements of policy that prioritize the humanitarian response over those other things. And four, and this is where I, you know, I, I think I'm veering from the consensus here is I think they have to have to give up some of the money, right? Um, they have to put some of that money into the trust funds faster and essentially accept that we're going to trust the World Bank, we're going to trust the UN um, to distribute that money in a, in, a, in a way that is consistent with our values and our principles, but just getting money back to the economy, like getting literally cash into those banks, getting cash into people's hands, um, letting um, salaries get paid by ministries and by organizations, I think is, is essential to averting worst case scenarios. I just would like to, to pick your brain about what are some of the lessons that you've learned or you would have liked to have known going into your line of work with, with international relations and humanitarian aid? Number one is there's no easy answers. And I think for people who want to get into the humanitarian community, I think eyes wide open, right? You're, we are, my colleagues and I tend to be motivated by a desire to you know, help save lives and alleviate human suffering, but you have to make a lot of compromises to do it. Um, even the decision for me to go to a conflict-affected area like a Myanmar or Jerusalem or Gaza or wherever, right? That has impacts, right? Like that has positive impacts, it has negative impacts. And, and you have to think, you have to accept that humanitarian action and the humanitarian sector is one that is fundamentally kind of based on a moral or ethical principle, but that requires a lot of moral and ethical um, compromises and calculations on a daily basis. I think clear vision, you know, um, clear direction, clear ownership, right? So what is our organization mandated to do? What is the outcome we want to achieve? What are we doing to achieve it? And how are we going to evaluate ourselves? When you see leaders do those things, like lay out a clear direction and take, and take responsibility for the bad, and let the youngers take responsibility for the good. Like that's the kind of leadership you like to see. Listeners, please like, subscribe, and share on on social media platforms. If you have any questions, comments, guest recommendations, please email us at virginiapolicyreview at gmail.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Center for Strategic International Studies, where they cover topics ranging from cybersecurity to economics to global health or energy and sustainability, you can find it at their website, csis.org. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.